trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, Patriots. This is Mason President Gregory Washington bringing you another Access to Excellence podcast, where we discuss the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. My guest today is Dr. Gail Christopher, Executive Director of the National Collaborative for Health Equity and a Senior Scholar at Mason Center for the Advancement of Wellbeing. Dr. Christopher is an award-winning social change agent and former senior advisor and vice president of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, where she led the truth, racial healing, and transformation effort for the United States in adaptation of a globally recognized truth and reconciliation commission model. In August 2017, Dr. Christopher left her leadership position with the Kellogg Foundation to launch the Maryland-based Entianu Center for Healing and Nature and to devote more time to writing and speaking on issues of health, racial healing, and the human capacity for caring. Known for her pioneering work to infuse holistic health and diversity concepts into public sector programs and policy discourse, Dr. Christopher is a nationally recognized leader in health policy and an expert in integrative health and medicine, social determinants of health, health inequities, and public policy issues of concern to our nation's future. In a time when our nation is divided by race and politics, I can think of no better person to discuss how we can bridge those divides and the role that racial justice can play in building of a culture of health. Dr. Christopher, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the show. President Washington, it is my pleasure to be invited and to enter into this conversation with you today. Well, thank you. Thank you. So yeah, I'm going to start off this thing just a little bit differently. Okay. Tell me the story of your house renovation and earthquake <laughs> and how that illustrated to you that we all have biases. Let's start there. All right. We could start there. You know, as a holistic practitioner, I have an aversion to violence. So I don't watch much of our regular television. I just watch HGTV a lot. And if you watch enough HGTV, Home and Garden, what are you going to do? What they're selling is renovation. <laughs> so <laughs> you're going exactly right. to buy the product, right? You're going to renovate. So if you have an old house, which I do, then the next step, what are you going to do? You're going to create an open concept, right? <laughs> you're going to take down a wall. So I was going to do that in my kitchen. And if you're going to take down a wall, you have to find out if it's load bearing or not. Basic engineering, you got to know. So I interviewed about five contractors and three of them said that it was not load bearing. Bearing, but two of them said that it was load bearing. So that was a bit of a dilemma. So I went down the basement, moved the ceiling panels, looked at the joists, decided that it was not load bearing, hired somebody who agreed with me, and we're off to the races. So it's demolition day, and they're taking out the cabinets, just like on TV, you know, and they get to the point where they're going to take down the wall that was there to separate the kitchen from the dining room. And the foreman showed up and he asked the lead contractor on site, he says, so what? What are you going to do if this is load bearing? And the guy says, it's not. He said, yeah, but what?
what are you going to do if it is? So that makes me nervous. But I still go upstairs because I got to catch a plane soon after that. And I grab my suitcase. But while I'm upstairs, my house starts to do the Watusi. It starts to shake and move from side to side. And I'm thinking, oh my Lord, what have they done? So I run downstairs and all the workmen have run outside. And so I'm thinking, oh my God. So I get outside and I say, what have you done to my house? And the lead contractor looks at me and he says, no, ma'am, it's an earthquake. And of course, this is Maryland, D.C. You know, I'm like, what kind of fool do you think I am? We don't have earthquakes here. I put my hands on my hips and I called him everything but a child of God. And he stood there and he looked at me and he said, no, ma'am, I'm from Guatemala. I've been in earthquakes. Go back in, turn on your TV, you'll see. And so I go back in and turn on the TV and there it is running across the bottom of the screen. 5.7 earthquake hits the D.C. area. (laughs) Amazing. What are the chances, right, that in the exact moment that they start taking down this wall, an earthquake happens? And so, but I, my bias that I had learned, quite honestly, from my father, it just came up and out in that moment of stress. I apologized profusely, and he accepted my apology. He was gracious enough to accept my apology, and he went on and did a wonderful job on my kitchen renovation. So it was not a load-bearing loss. Nope. <laughs> it was not low bearing. It was all okay. But the lesson I took from that was how it's in these moments of stress, these moments of heightened anxiety. And that's often the case for a physician or for a law enforcement officer or for even an educator or anybody who is interacting. And it's their responsibility to perhaps make a major decision. But if they're stressed, that decision is very likely clouded by whatever internal biases they may have. So this is a very stressful time in the country between COVID-19, George Floyd, and the push for racial justice. How do those factors play into how biases are projected and ingrained prejudices? You know, it's an interesting duality right now. We're all stressed. And I would add to that list that you gave in terms of the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd. But we also had an intentional hyper division of our country politically. And so all of these things are playing into a heightened level of stress that we have. And most of the division also manipulated fears because biases are really rooted in fear of the perceived other. And so we have this moment of heightened fear and anxiety of one another, heightened stress, which means those fears are expressed more easily, and vulnerability that we all have. So I think it combines to make it a critical time when we need to intervene and try to bring reason and some healing in the midst of all this craziness. It's interesting, but you know, when you look at what's happening and you look at what we're dealing with, it's kind of like two pandemics. You got the pandemic associated with coronavirus, but then it's a sickness of the country. It's a global sickness when you start talking about racial inequity. And to be totally honest with you, the reaction to George Floyd was global. It was not just in this country, right? We saw protests erupt all over the globe. I don't know that I've ever seen that. I guess the last time... 
I remember in my lifetime having something of a similar experience was the whole apartheid time when Nelson Mandela was released from jail. I remember seeing a global reaction to that, but I don't know that I've seen one since then. Not like this. I agree with you. It is a phenomenon. One thought I have on it is, of course, the fact that we were all part of a global human family of pandemic reality, which we haven't ever had a moment in our collective experience that made us all aware of our interconnectedness in the ways that COVID-19 has. You also had a buildup of frustration and this sheltering in kind of thing, right? So that today's technology that made this viral in ways that in terms of artificial intelligence, I mean, people saw this horrendous thing and they saw it over and over and over again in terms of the video of this man literally being executed in front of our eyes. And this was globally spread. Facebook is like a country in terms of its revenues and its reach. It's more than a country. So you had those unique sort of global dynamics, but you also had, like you did in South Africa, you had a movement that had been going on for I'd say the Black Lives Matter movement, the racial justice movement, it's been at work for at least the last 15 years. And then you had a series of killings. And at least for the momentum in this country, it was just too much. And I think that there were many things that added to that. I think we're at a moment, I think we're at an inflection point in terms of the opportunity for real change. Well, this is good because that kind of leads into my next line of questioning. How did you get to do this work? You speak of this thing literally being something that's a continuum that's been going on for some period of time. Were you actively engaged in all of that time? Because you work on a global scale. How did this become your life's calling and how does it connect to this moment? Well, thank you for that question. I grew up in the civil rights era, first of all, right? So I think in that sense, this idea of fighting for justice kind of became part of my way of seeing the world, part of my worldview. I mean, Martin Luther King came to my high school. So those series of protests, those murders during that period, they were etched into my consciousness as I was coming of age. But then I got married, had my first child, and She was fine, we thought, but when we took her for a six-week checkup, the doctor diagnosed a congenital heart defect. And they said at the time, I'll never forget it, they said, there's nothing we can do for her until she's much older, at which point we may be able to do open-heart surgery. And they told us to take her home. Well, she died about maybe three or four weeks later. Of course, the hospital knew that would happen. The condition called tetralogy of fallow, there is going to be a surgical intervention. It has to happen right then. It has to happen when they're infants. And so I'll never know why they didn't offer us that intervention. But all of a sudden, I became one of those statistics, you know, of infant mortality. I had seen that play out in my community. I grew up in a Black community. So some of my parents' best friends, they had died in childbirth. They had lost children. But I didn't know it was a thing until I experienced it. And that really launched me on a personal mission to see why this thing happened to Black women and families and what could be done about it. The irony is it was, wasn't until 20 years later that I learned that the surgery that could have saved my baby's life had been invented at least 30 years before she was born, had saved tens of thousands of lives. And the deepest cut, it had been invented by an African-American man. 
Vivian Thomas. And that surgery he had invented to correct the hearts of little blue babies had ushered in the field of cardiac surgery. And so, you know, her name was Intianu. And I've always thanked her for really launching me on my life's work. And that was why I created the center here in Maryland to honor her memory. So tell me the difference between racial healing and anti-racism. I'm a holistic person in my view of how you make change. And I really think that we have to focus on what we're for in order to get there. You know, we have to have a North Star that then drives everything we do. And we don't just want to be against something in this work. We want to create something new. And so the racial healing work, one way that it differs from the anti-racism work is that the subject is healing and wholeness. And it's driven by envisioning the way we should relate as human beings. I love Buckminster Fuller's quote, architect of the 20th century that was pretty well recognized, innovative. And he said, you know, change doesn't happen by attacking the existing models. Change happens when we create new models that make the old models obsolete. So when I say racial healing, I'm about jettisoning the fundamental permission to devalue human beings based on their physical characteristics and replacing that antiquated belief system with a new model of how we relate with one another as human beings, a new model that is grounded in a deep understanding of our interdependence and interconnectedness as an expanded human family. So it's a consciousness change that has to replace this antiquated way of being upon which, quite honestly, the theoretical, philosophical, and and structural basis of our society has been built. You know, you brought up the Buckminster Fuller quote, and I'm sitting here looking at my notes. That was a quote that I was going to actually ask you to react to. And so you kind of answered it for me. (laughs) Amazing. Well, it has really helped me to understand, along with my sort of holistic, spiritual way of seeing the world, my mom used to say, make something happen, right? I get it. If you're going to make something happen, you got to see it. You know what I mean? You got you got to have it in front of you. So that's one way that this work differs from anti-racism work. The other way that it differs is that it understands that we're still 12% of the US population. And even though the demographic projection is that this country will be predominantly people of color, you have to have a critical mass of people who are willing to stand up for justice. Just like we saw the marching in response to the murder of George Floyd. Floyd, we have to keep that momentum. We have to get people's hearts and minds to see that this is critically important for the future of our democracy. The current discussions today have a strong interconnection with Black Lives Matter. How does this work connect? How does it dovetail with BLM? And what do you see as the differences there? You know, the Black Lives Matter movement grew out of the frustration with these killings And, you know, we have this world of the Internet now where a movement can be spawned and nurtured online in ways that it couldn't have 50 years ago. The Black Lives Matter movement 
is global in its scale and scope, and it is leaderless in the sense that it is not the old model of like the civil rights organizations where you you had a leader, a leader, many of which the leaders were taken out or attempted to be taken out. So you've got more of this spontaneous understanding that this has to end. This idea of taking our lives has to come to a stop. And even within that movement, though, some of the younger people, particularly in the early days, like after Ferguson and Trayvon Martin, you know, some of those young people who led that effort, they understood pretty quickly that they needed healing, that the trauma of trying to push up against a force that was so entrenched and so resistant was really hard for them. And they needed more allies and more relationships and more friends to keep them engaged in this work. So we see the Black Lives Matter movement and the racial healing work as intersecting and very connected, but also we see it as a necessary support for that movement. Because fighting injustice, while it energizes, if you're on the front lines of it, it can also burn you out. No, without question. And and that's interesting because there's a therapeutic aspect to healing. And so when you're talking about the healing process and the process of bringing people together, I can see that being an entity that has more longevity. So that makes a lot of sense. You know, in this last Congress, Robert Lee put forward H.R. 100, and that included a commission for the United States on racial healing and transformation. What happened to that bill and where does the push for such a commission stand? Well, you know, Congresswoman Barbara Lee is an amazing woman with her own unique racial history, and she's done so much that most people don't know about. It's so ironic. She was actually watching a a morning talk show, and my daughter was a guest on that show. She talks about issues of the economy, and she called her and she said, I want to create a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for America. And my daughter said, well, you need to talk to my mother. (laughs) She's the one that could be helpful. And so Barbara Lee contacted me, and that was in 2017. And we worked together with about three or four other people quietly, and we drafted the bill calling for a U.S. Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission. And she and her leadership, her really amazing political savvy and leadership with her staff, they marshaled 170 co-sponsors for that resolution. And then toward the end of that Congress, uh, Senator Cory Booker introduced a companion bill into the Senate. And I think he launched it with at least 14 or 15 co-sponsors. So we were up at about 180 plus. But, you know, if a bill doesn't make it, you know, out of committee and to the floor for a vote, you have to start over. And so the two bills were reintroduced in this current Congress. And now we're up to about 150 co-sponsors. But again, it's a resolution calling for the creation. So there is the opportunity for congressional action, possibly. But, you know, there's so many priorities in this administration. Well, there are a lot of hot button issues, right? And to me, this one kind of speaks to everybody. There's no winner or loser here. Everybody can actually win, right? If you think about the other issues from a perspective of race, there always seems like it's being placed to put one entity against another entity, right? So you have a group calling for reparations and you have another group who feels that there will be a loss to them if those reparations are paid out. You have a group saying Black Lives Matter, and they'll say, well, but what about my life? Does my life matter too? You know what I'm saying? I'm not Black. Do I fit in this context? You get what I'm saying? Oh, I do. 
if you go through every single one of these issues, you could tell me the one that doesn't that doesn't fit, but it's almost like a yin and a yang, with the exception of this one. This one kind of says we got some issues. We should heal. We should come together around healing uh, relative to these issues. Let me ask you this, and, and, and maybe I got a little ahead of myself earlier, but what would you say are the basic tenets? The right? basic framework, the basic strategy of DRHT is to recognize that we have to create a new narrative. Our brains are wired to remember story, basically. You know, I mean, stories make up our belief systems. They make up our world. And, you know, a very false story has been told about people of color. I don't like the term white supremacy because I don't want to reinforce that fallacy. But this notion that one race is superior to others, it's embedded. It's the story that America was built on. Every picture you see just about reinforces that story. Story. So the first tenet of TRHT is to create a different story. Tell the truth. Tell the truth about who we are, who built this country. Just the whole truth, as they say, nothing but the truth. And then we have to do the work to build a sense of compassion and capacity for empathy and understanding and really work on bridging our divides and make it safe. You know, it's not us against them. It's us against the possibility of annihilation through climate change and everything else, you know. So there really has to be a we that is expanded. And then so the second tenet is that racial healing and relationship building, but it's strategic. It's to build a critical mass of public will. Then the third principle or tenet of this work is to recognize if this idea of a hierarchy of human value, it's all it is is an idea, a bad idea, a false idea. If this idea has lasted for all the these centuries, what's been the strategy to maintain this fallacy? And we came up with three basic answers. First, it was through separation, just complete and total policies, government-sanctioned policies of separation, separation from our families, separation from land for the Native people, separation and isolation in prison, separation in terms of the continuum of the cradle-to-prison pipeline, separation, redlining, residential segregations, just it goes on and on. Separation is the hallmark of an oppressive, racially oppressive regime. And so we have to see that and we have to fix that if we're ever going to get rid of racism. The other tenet, of course, is through our legal system. We're all seeing the atrocities of the criminal system, but it's also in the civil system. It's also in the voting system, in the immigration policy. Laws have been used to embed and sustain and structure this racial inequity. But then ultimately, the final pillar of the five part framework for TRHT is the economy. This fallacy of a hierarchy of human value, this philosophical permission to devalue people drove an economic engine that was based on oppression and exploitation. And so if we're really ever going to get rid of racism and its effects, we have to redesign an economy, an economy that honors the humanity and engages fully with equal compensation, all of us, right? So those are the five pillars, narrative change, racial healing and relationship building, separation, the law and the economy. Now, it's broad enough where local jurisdictions and college campuses and organizations, they adapt that framework and they prioritize what they would consider their low hanging fruit. In addition to 
the framework, there's also a process that we engage in, which begins, like I said before, with that visioning. What should the narrative be, right? How should we relate to each other? How should we overcome and how can we overcome the legacy of separation? What should our transformed legal system be? We need now, people said abolish the police. If you ever been to a country that didn't have police, you might think twice about that, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> I've been there. But, it's interesting, but there were people cheering for that for lots of different reasons when, when, when folks say abolish the police. Yeah, I know. But truthfully, you need law enforcement, but you need it. exactly right. You know what I'm saying? I've been there, right, in countries where, and the only way you had police was through private police. Well, what is that, right? So that was the case in South Africa right after apartheid ended. There was no policing system. And so if anybody wanted security, they had to pay for it. But you start with the vision and then you start with what does a new economy look like, right? But once you figure out where you're going, then you figure out, well, where are you now? And that's where you do the use the data, the amazing data that we have to analyze the current landscape and continue to tell the truth of what's going on. But then you have to figure out, well, if that's where we're going, this is where we are. Who has the power to change that? Right. So who needs to be at the helm or in the conversation or help to create the strategy that's going to change that reality? And then you figure out what are the immediate actions that you need to take? And then what are the long term sustainable systems that you have to put in place to maintain the change? So the framework and the process together, I believe, can get us to where we need to go in a stealth, consistent, persistent way. It's interesting, but something you said there jumps off to me in a very, very profound way. I mean, just the issue of separation alone. I was reading here where it says over 90% of white people in our country don't have a meaningful relationship with a black person. And you say, you can see how we're in a specific echo chamber, right? Of course, there's a lack of understanding when the individuals around you, you don't have a strong enough relationship with those individuals to have the kind of conversations to help you understand what that group might be feeling. But then when you look at it, over 80% of Black people don't have a meaningful relationship with a white person. So technically, it's the same boat. Yeah. Right. And I'd be willing to bet I hadn't seen the data on this, but I'd be willing to bet that you will start to see that entity spread throughout many different communities in our country where people kind of stay together. They're separate amongst themselves. They stay within their groups and you get almost like a tribalism type mm-hmm. framework. Uh, where it becomes, you know, if you get a benefit, that's almost a detriment to me. You get what I'm saying? Oh, I absolutely do. It's this zero sum mentality, right? That if you get something, it's coming out of my pocket. And if I've objectified you and I, I don't have any sense of... It's sad, but you know, when we see children who are hurt, the research is there that you're going to respond more empathetically to the hurt of a child of your own race. So we have a lot of work to do to be able to care generally, right? And to see beyond these superficial separations and characteristics. And if we're going to have a multiracial democracy that works, this piece of the work has to be done. Without question. And it's interesting. If you can just deal with that issue, you will have tremendous outcomes. But then the other ones that you highlighted, the issues of truth, the economic piece, there's a shot, right? There's a real shot at being able to resolve many of the ills facing our society in this regard based on these individual principles. It's really, really cool. 
Well, thank you for saying that. And I have seen some amazing things happening in communities around the country who are doing the work, right? Uh, Chicago is a, is a good illustration or Buffalo, New York, or even up in Alaska, the indigenous people are working in what they call BIPOC coalition, you know? So they're working with the blacks in Alaska and the whites, and, and they're working on policy changes, you know? So it well, isn't- This is good. So yeah. tell me, well, well, let's go there. Let's talk about some of the really good outcomes that this process and this philosophy has been able to have. And I do want to encourage people to visit the W.K. Kellogg Foundation website. They have a section called Heal Our Communities, where they have captured a report on what has happened in the last three years. In Chicago, they have a thousand young people that have been trained to facilitate these types of racial healing experiences and circles. And they do it in partnership with the local community college. And so they're creating a way of employment for these young people to develop skills to facilitate bringing diverse groups together. Now, that's not life-changing, but it is for those young people who are developing new capacities and skills. In Dallas, Texas, and that is the South, as we know, they came together across all these lines, Native American, Asian American, Pacific Islander, African American, and they were able to get the first ever Office of Racial Equity within the school system. And Dallas is tough, right? For them, that is a victory. And they are now working on transforming the curriculum of that K through 12 system so that it is a harbinger of true history of Dallas, the diverse history of Dallas. You know, In Buffalo, New York, they did some amazing work with the local business community. And they their truth, racial healing and transformation effort created a business roundtable and got measurable concrete commitments from the business leaders to hire and to bring these young men of color into opportunities for employment in ways that would be sustainable for them. Some other communities have worked on the policing issues and developed accountability boards that are really accountable, that are accountable with an understanding of the legacy. In a Alaska, they make sure that any of the partners in the work sign an accountability pledge so that they really do step up and own their own role in creating the inequities as they work together. In all the places, though, they are developing this, I call it a cadre or a nucleus of people who get it who get the framework, who get the principles, and who ha- who want to work to facilitate expanding the circles of public will and engagement. So this really means that this thing has some momentum. You know, you have to be careful because, you know, you got to knock on wood, I guess, <laughs> before you say, say no, too I get much. It. But- I get it. But, the, but there is some momentum. And, you know, we've got campus centers that are exciting because it's the next generation that's really got to carry this into the future. And that's why I was so excited when the Association of American Colleges and Universities became a real partner with us in this work. And initially they had 10 campuses. A year later, I think they had 25. I understand that this summer they're going to have 65 college campuses as part of the new institute that they're launching. And, and so it it does have momentum, not enough, but we just have to keep working. I would take it that you would say that it is at least moving in the right direction. I do say that. I absolutely do. And your astute observation of the fact that it isn't a narrow scope, you know, it isn't myopic, it is really broad and holistic, and it is a win-win strategy. That is perceived by some as a threat to whatever agenda they may have. So we have to continue to just 
go forward and try to keep expanding the circles of engagement and really connect at a deep level with those who don't fully understand the potential. Well, this is really, really powerful, much more so than what even I could see on the surface, because there is a pathway here and there is a pathway that, like I said, can be uplifting to all. That is really, really cool. Thank you for saying that. Thank you very much. It's important for leaders like yourself on campuses around the country and in communities to see the picture and to become in some ways kind of ambassadors. So I'm just thrilled to have you say that and to be in this podcast with you. Well, look, the reality is we have a Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Center on our campus. Yes, and we do. We were one of the cohorts that you highlighted earlier. Did it make sense that this campus, given its history and given its progress in this space, would actually have it? So to me, this is par for the course. We're going to be a big part of this. And as a person leading the institution, this is something that I can clearly get behind and support. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And, you know, you all stepped up in a big way to support this work, to embrace it. And we were very impressed that George Mason is doing it. You also have some exciting work going on right here in Maryland, funded by the Department of Justice to take an honest look at the lynching history in Maryland, part of that truth telling. The governor pardoned, a posthumous pardon of all of those people who had been lynched in an extrajudicial way. Their human and civil rights have been denied. And, you know, you have a Republican governor here in Maryland. And so being able to say that this transcends party divisions, you know, that's a powerful indication of the potential. Absolutely right. It's a great thing to see. These principles transcend party. Doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. These are issues that you can be, for lack of a better way of putting this progressive. We hope so. I mean, that's one of the intentions is to be a force as you started this conversation that can help to bridge our acute divides right now. So as I start to wrap up here, talk a little bit about you as an individual. So your mother was one of 14 children in Alabama and the only one of those children to get a college degree. How did that inspire you? Do you know, I always tell people that children, they learn from what we do while they're not listening to what we say. (laughs) And I, I think that my mother's determination, you know, as I said, her favorite expression was make something happen. And she just had a lot of grit. She used to say, and she was small. She was like five, three or something. And she would say, I may be a little piece of leather, but I'm well put together. So don't mess with me. (laughs) She she actually managed to fool her parents. She wrote a letter to her brother asking him to send for her to move from Alabama to Ohio. And so she called herself giving him a sample letter so he could write one. And he sent that same letter back, you know, to her parents. And she was so nervous. She was afraid her parents would see that that was her handwriting, you know, and not his. But either they didn't see it or they just knew she needed an opportunity to finish school. Because back then in Alabama, you couldn't go beyond, I think it was the ninth grade, right? And so she was able to get herself to Ohio to finish school. But it wasn't until many, many years later, I think she was, well, maybe 38 or something when she started college. And she went to college at night. It took her eight years to go to college at night. But she did eventually finish and became a teacher and an educator and ultimately was head of the sorority of Black educators and was listed as one of the 100 most influential Black
Black women in America. So she had a lot of grit and determination. And I think in many ways, I just internalized that can-do attitude. This is really, really powerful stuff and fascinating insights in this most important conversation. I do want to make sure we continue to connect. You definitely have a solution for America in this regard. And I want to do what we can on our end to continue to support it. And so that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Access to Excellence podcast. I want to thank Dr. Gail Christopher, Executive Director of the National Collaborative for Health Equity and a Senior Scholar at Mason Center for the Advancement of Well-Being for her time and expertise. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mason President Gregory Washington saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.